thing. Just two verses, but really, really dense. And that's kind of the, the pattern that we're seeing in Mark. Mark's gospel is very terse. He doesn't waste words. He doesn't spend a lot of time embellishing details. He's straight and to the point, and he's moving us through, especially these early um, encounters and events of Jesus very, very quickly. His agenda is very clear. He wants to show us that Jesus is this new and coming king, this greater king that Israel's been waiting for, that the world maybe doesn't understand that it's been waiting for, but it needs, and it should have been waiting for and longing for. And in Mark chapter 1, verses 14 and 15, this is kind of the official start of Jesus' public ministry. Verse 14, it says, After John the Baptist was put in prison, Jesus went into Galilee proclaiming the good news of God. The time has come, he said, the kingdom of God is near. Repent and believe the good news. That's Mark's summation of Jesus' beginning of his, uh, of his uh, public ministry, where he begins preaching and going throughout the region uh, of Galilee first, giving this message about the kingdom of God, the good news about the kingdom of God. Now, this is really, really important because language like God, kingdom, kingdom of heaven, gospel, good news of the kingdom, the gospel of the kingdom. Through all four gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, those terms kind of get used all together and pieced together in different ways. And so what's happened over a number of millennia in Christianity is people have had different understandings of what the kingdom means and what kind of Jesus is driving at. Is he talking about heaven? Like how to get to heaven? Is he talking about a kind of new kind of government? Um, in Matthew's gospel, you read about the kingdom of heaven, but in the other gospels, it's the kingdom of God. Is that a distinction? Is that a different thing? Are they the same thing? So I want to talk about that now because understanding the kingdom of God, there's kind of been a renaissance within the evangelical church over the last 20 or 30 years in trying to make sure people understand from a first century point of view what Jesus meant and what people would have heard when they hear the language of the kingdom of God has come near. What is the kingdom of God? This is a really important question to answer. There's a really strong, wise, evangelical New Testament scholar named Gordon Fee. And in a lecture at Regent College a few years ago, he said, he said this. He said, you cannot know anything about Jesus, anything, if you miss the kingdom of God. You are zero on Jesus if you don't understand this term. I'm sorry to say it that strongly, but this is the great failure of evangelical Christianity. We have had Jesus without the kingdom of God, and therefore we have literally done Jesus in. Now that is a strong kind of throwdown statement. But, but I, th I, 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 think he's, I think he has a legitimate point. I want, and I want to begin to show you, because really Mark's gospel is about this unfolding understanding of what the kingdom of God is, but it starts right here. The first thing that I want to get out of the way, and if this rattles people, uh, don't, don't panic, just hold tight and we'll continue to unpack it as we move through things. The, probably the, the least at an introductory level that should be said is that when Jesus or the gospel writers talk about the kingdom of God, other than a few instances, maybe 99% of the time, they're not talking about heaven as we would think of like the heaven as the place where, where God presides fully and earth. They're not talking, even, even, even the language of the kingdom of heaven, they're not talking about the geographic place. And we know that because if they would have, they would have just said heaven. But they don't. It's the kingdom of heaven. 
the idea of heaven is attached to this idea of a kingdom. So the kingdom of heaven doesn't mean, or the kingdom of God, and those are used interchangeably. The reason why kingdom of heaven is used in Matthew is because to, to a Jewish audience, Matthew wants to avoid using the term God because uh, Orthodox Jews don't even use the name God for fear, of mis, for fear of mispronouncing it, which would show disrespect to God. So they just substitute the word heaven as a reference to God. So kingdom of heaven and kingdom of God mean the same thing. They're just, kingdom of heaven is a more cautious, respectful way of saying it so as not to offend God's holy name. But when Jesus says the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven has come near, he's not saying heaven as like that, that place, kind of that other God's dimension of reality. Um, he's not talking about that as a geographic space, nor is he talking about what a lot of people sometimes think that comes up in John's gospel, eternal life, this idea of having life eternal forever. He's not talking about that. If he would have, he could have said eternal life. He does so at different points of the gospel. The kingdom of God is not heaven in a, as a geographic place. It's not really referring to that as directly. And it's not referring to eternal life in the sense of, I'm here to tell you how to get to heaven or how to have eternal life, kind of life after death. Those aren't the two, those two associations wouldn't have occurred to a first century Jewish person. When a first century Jewish person hears the kingdom of God, what they hear stands in the long Hebrew tradition of the Old Testament and the current understanding of what a kingdom is, which is someone's rule and reign right here, right now. So when Jesus talks about the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven, he's talking about God's rule and reign, God's authority, God's government, his heavenly government coming in power and establishing itself here and now. This is not a hopeful message for life after death. This is something that's impacting right now. So you could paraphrase Mark 1.15 as kind of Jesus saying God's reign is at hand, God's power is being unleashed, and repent, turn your life around. Repent just means uh, turn 180 from the direction that you're going. Stop going down that path, repent, turn away, and go this way instead because of the fact that this kingdom, this power, this authority, this new rulership is breaking into the world and with it all kinds of new possibilities. Trust and believe this good news. Live into this reality now. Stop living into these other false stories that you've heard your whole life because there's a whole new story unfolding about a whole new kind of king, a whole new kind of way of being human in the world. Now, this is loaded language, kingdom of God, God's rule and reign here and now. Remember, there's four groups that emerge in the intertestamental period between the end of the Old Testament, the beginning of the New, Sadducees, Pharisees, Zealots, and the Essenes. They all have their strategy of this is what we need to do to kind of make God break his silence and get involved and intervene and tear the heavens and come down and fix things. How are we going to get the kingdom of God to come? How can we get God to rule and reign now? They all had different strategies. But Jesus' declaration sidesteps all four of those groups because he doesn't say, hey, I'm running as a member of the uh, municipal Pharisee party and the kingdom of God has come near. It's coming through the Pharisaical party. Actually, I'm a member of the zealot party. This is how Jesus stands. He kind of stands apart from all of them and he says, the kingdom of God is at hand. And what we're going to see in Mark, Jesus' tremendously bold claim, and he backs it up, not just with words, but in deed, is he says, the rule and reign of God is coming. 
But it's not coming through a, a, a political entity. It's not coming through a group of people. It's not really coming through mere human beings. It's coming through myself. I am the forebear of the kingdom. I am the gospel of the kingdom. I have come to bring the rule and reign of God. Again, not just as a mere human, not just as a Messiah in a Jewish sense, that somehow a special prophetic figure, someone who's greater than simply a prophet, greater than simply a prophetic figure, someone who Mark is going to show us very quickly is fully human, but he's also fully divine. He's this mysterious... Um, in, the Jewish, in the Jewish first century system, the, the place where heaven and earth came together and were married was the Holy of Holies in the temple. That's where heaven and earth fused together. That's why it's the most sacred place in the world. And Jesus is coming along and he's going to tell people, but he's also going to show people, I'm actually that fusion point. I'm the place where heaven and earth overlap and interlock I'm a one-man apocalypse who will move into this world bringing the power and glory and reign of God to bear. So this kingdom is coming and it's being brought by a Messiah, but he's more than just a man and this kingdom is good news. In Luke chapter four, um, Luke expands on one of the first sermons that Jesus ever gives when he starts this repent and believe the good news of the kingdom ministry. In Luke chapter 4, it says this. It says, Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit, and news about him spread throughout the whole countryside. He was teaching in their synagogues, and everyone praised him. He went to Nazareth, where he, where he had been brought up, and on the Sabbath day, he went into the synagogue, as was his custom. Pause. Jesus takes weekly synagogue attendance really, really seriously. It was his custom. This is a whole other sermon. I'm just going to slide in my little pastoral thing to say, here's a really good example. This is a friction. This is what I would call a, this has to cause people cognitive dissonance for people who say, I'm all about the kingdom, but I'm not really for the institutional church. That's not really like my, that's not my bag. It's like awkward and it's political and it's like all messed up and dysfunctional. I don't really get a lot out of the sermons. If anybody never got anything out of the synagogue sermons, it would have been Jesus. If there's anybody who could legitimately sit there and say from a download point of view, this is a waste of my time, it's Jesus. If anyone could sit in the, if, if anyone could have said, you know what, I'm going to give up on this corporate um, worshiping collected body because it's full of dysfunction and it's gotten too political and it's, and it's, um, it's missed its mark, it absolutely could have been Jesus. What do we see? As was, as was his custom, he gathers together to worship with other believers in synagogues, and then he also goes out into the world. It's not either or for him. He's not for the kingdom as this nebulous sense that's disconnected. He says, no, the kingdom is coming in and through God's people. Corporate worship has its place. It's supremely important. I will make that my custom, and I will also go into the world singing, reading scripture, out into the public square, both and. So he stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight to the blind and to set the oppressed free. To proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, sat down. Now, that doesn't mean sat down in the congregation. It means sat down to teach. Because in a Jewish context, the only time you stand is when God, God's word is being read 
If a rabbi speaks, that's great, but that's commentary on the word of God, so you can sit for that. So Jesus is about to sit and teach people, and it says, the eyes of everyone in the synagogue are fastened on him, and he, said, he began by saying, this wasn't his whole message, Luke just records the beginning of his first sermon. He says, he began by saying, today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. That's a first century drop the mic moment. That is, poof. people are like, whoa. Remember that prophecy that I just read? It just came true right now. You're a part of history. This kingdom, this new and breaking of God's power and possibility and reign and rule and glory and goodness, it's breaking forward through me right now. That's how Jesus begins his teaching ministry. This is really important to remember because living within the Roman Empire, for a lot of people who were pagan, and certainly for Jewish people, was not good news. They didn't like their living situation, right? Um, the, they lived under a tremendous amount of tyranny and oppression. Some first century scholars believe that after you calculate all the taxations that had to be paid between Rome and between the corrupted Jewish system and tax collectors and all these layers, some people, depending on your category, were paying up, upwards of 70, 71% tax. It was back-breakingly oppressive economically. It was oppressive religiously. The, the entire Roman system, sometimes we have a very um, soft, kind of or almost noble view of it, just kind of militaristic, but it was kind of very logical and reasonable. It was very exploitative. It was very demeaning. It was very dehumanizing. Rome didn't have a lot of time for people who weren't strong enough, smart enough, successful enough, powerful enough. If you, were power, if you had access to those things, of course you found your way into the empire. Of course you'd be looked after. But if you couldn't, if you couldn't run with the wolves, there was lots of ways that Rome made your life miserable. So people are hungry for, this, for a new kingdom, a new government to break forth. This isn't Canada, where if someone showed up on the street in Nelson and said, the kingdom of God is drawn near, people would be like, that's weird, <laughs> whatever. Because I like my life, I got a good life. We live in the mo likely the most prosperous, best nation in the entire world to live in. But that wasn't the first century context. So when you have someone saying, there's a new rule coming, Something is coming that's going to overthrow Rome and overthrow all the principalities of darkness. People are hungry for this. They're not, that, there's no ambivalence towards it. That's why very quickly you see thousands of people following Jesus around. That's why Jesus initially, you'll see it in Mark, has to often say to people, I've healed you, let's keep this on the down low. Don't let too many people know yet because I've got to get to certain places and I can't if I'm flanked by thousands and thousands of people. And so after being tested in the wilderness, Jesus goes into Galilee. That's significant. Galilee, historically, is a hotbed for insurrection. All kinds of revolts come out of Galilee. The book of Acts talks about Judas the Galilean. It's a revolt that happens after Jesus' time that it's put down. And Jesus starts his preaching ministry. Remember, to this point, he's just been a He's just been a tecton for 30 years. He's just been a builder. Some people say carpenter. I'll agree to disagree. I don't know if you've been to Galilee. I've seen pictures. Not a lot of forested area. Lots of stone. Jesus was probably a builder. Could probably work with wood, but more likely worked with stone. He's been doing that for 30 years, and now he's shifting gears. And his message is the time has come. The kingdom of God is, at, is near or at hand. Repent and believe the good news. 
So as an opening line to what you're about, this is really electric, and there's a, it, it's, a, it's a charged atmosphere, and this is like kindling. This is like flint. And we're going to see really quickly in Mark how everything explodes out very, very fast. Because this kingdom isn't just going to happen. Jesus isn't saying, hey, here's a new prophecy in 50 years or 500 years out. Jesus is saying this is near. This is at hand. It's accessible. You can actually reach out and grab it. This is no longer just empty promises of a future time. The promise has come to fulfillment. And this is massively attractive if you were a Jew living in the first century because all your dreams are coming true. We've waited for this for so long. God has been quiet and silent for so long. No prophets, no speaking to us. And now he's on the move. Everyone is interested in this message. But not if you're part of the corrupt religious establishment or part of Rome. Because you have your good life. You are benefiting off the system. You're wealthy. You're protected. You're successful. If you're part of the power structure, any proclamation of another kingdom or a competing authority, that's not good news. That's bad news, and it needs to get dealt with immediately. And Rome had a very good process of dealing with insurrectionists who talked about overthrowing Rome and replacing it with a different political system. And that process always ended the same way. It was crucifixion. And it was a few decades before Jesus lived that one time that there was a rebellion that got so close to causing a lot of uh, issues for Rome that Rome crucified a thousand people outside the gates of Jerusalem along, along the road. So when you walked into Jerusalem, Rome wanted to send a very clear message. You play by our rules and you'll be fine. If we hear any talk on whatever grounds about a different kind of king or a different kind of kingdom, you've been warned. That's it. Rome didn't play nice with proclamations of a new kingdom. And they took all proclamations very, very seriously because of the Jewish revolt under the Hasmonean dynasty, the Hanukkah thing, read into it. Rome learned its lesson that a bunch of fired up, especially Jewish people, could be very dangerous and very threatening to Rome. So when Jesus comes along, this is something that is electric, it is charged, and it is potentially very, very dangerous. Three quick reflections on the text. Number one, when the kingdom of God breaks forth, powers push back. And I'm saying powers generically because sometimes the scripture tells us demonic powers, sometimes the scripture tells us political powers or religious powers, sometimes it's both and. But whenever the kingdom of God breaks forth, powers push back. I had never noticed the first part of verse 14 because it's so quick, you almost miss it. After John was put in prison, Jesus starts his ministry. You go to that part. Oh, kingdom of God has come. This is awesome. It is awesome. And it happens right on the heels of a really major tragedy. Jesus' cousin has been speaking truth to power. Mark goes into it more detail later on, actually. In Mark chapter 6, he says, um, Herod Antipas, who's the current uh, king of the Jews in Galilee and, and ruling in that area, um, he divorces his wife. He, divor he has his brother divorce his wife so he can marry his brother's wife. And John says, Okay, that would just be immoral for anybody. But you're supposed to be the king of the Jews. You're supposed to be our leader. But that's against Torah. You don't get to have a divorce and command another divorce. That's, a, that's adultery. 
And John is speaking truth to power. And Herod, in Mark chapter 6, says Herod put him in prison. And Herodias, uh, the, the brother's wife who's going to get married to Herod, she nurses this grudge against John. Who, who, how dare this backwater nobody preacher from the wilderness? Who does he think he is to shoot his mouth off about the lifestyle that I and my future husband want to live? He has no authority here. Nurses a grudge. She wants to kill him. Herod's like, Ugh, this is super awkward. I'd like to kill him, dear, but he's super popular with the people. And if I kill him, then the people are going to revolt. But it also says in Mark chapter 6, it says, um, he knew, Herod feared John and he protected John kind of behind the scenes because he knew him to be a righteous and holy man. So there was a bit of God-fearingness in Herod. Herod's like, I don't think I should kill good, like John. I think that'd be a no-no in God's eye, if there is a God. Herod's not very God-fearing, but he is here. And then it says, whenever Herod heard John, he was really puzzled, but he liked to listen to him. Herod was like, I don't know what it is about this guy. He's, really, he's kind of strange. I don't really get it. His whole camel hair, organic bee thing. It's really weird. I don't, he's, he doesn't live in my world, but I, I'm interested in him. I like his fire, something about him. So he resists, and John gets put in prison. And after he gets put in prison, Jesus starts proclaiming the kingdom. And don't miss that, because I think this is a really critical insight into the nature of discipleship, into the nature of what it is going to mean to follow Jesus in this world, into the nature of what, it, what you should expect to happen when the kingdom of God begins to establish itself in your life, in your family's life, in your marriage, in your community. When the kingdom of God breaks into people's lives, that doesn't mean that bad things aren't going to happen. And scripturally, I think the inference would be greater than that. When the kingdom of God breaks into your life, it's more likely that something bad or tragic is going to spring up somewhere else. And the reason is because, think about what the kingdom of God is. The kingdom of God is the rule and reign of God taking, taking back ground from the enemy. And when the kingdom takes back ground from the enemy, whether that enemy is demonic or devilish in nature or just human territory, political power, whatever it is, people with that, the ground that you're, people that are getting the ground taken from them, they tend not to react like, my bad, this is yours, no problem. That is not how, that's not how the ground reacts. The ground reacts with, by what authority do you think you can take this from me? This is actually mine. And, they, and it pushes back. It fights back. And that's what you see happening in John. John is a messenger of the kingdom. He's preparing the way for the kingdom. And now the political powers, and I certainly think the evidence is there uh, demonically, is, um, is starting to, to rise up. I was talking with Ray last week, and, and, and he was like, man, there's a lot of demon possession stuff in Mark. Like more than the other gospels. Like almost every miracle, every few chapters is a demonic exorcism of some kind. Jesus confronting demons. And we're going to see that in Mark. When the kingdom of God establishes itself, the kingdoms of this world, visible and invisible, begin to push back. And so don't be discouraged when God is taking, don't be surprised or discouraged when if you are seeking God, there are other, when it, it's awesome over here, the kingdom's breaking forth. Why is this all of a sudden happening? Why is this hardship befalling me? Why is this happening in my marriage or this attack happening in my job or in this relationship? It was going so good here. When the kingdom breaks forth, scripture never says you get kind of a cone of, a force field cone, cone that thou, now, that's how you know God's at work in your life when nothing is, is going wrong. That's the, that's the actual evidence. Scripturally, the evidence is 
as you press into what God has for you, there's going to be a counter. There's going to be blowback. There's going to be a pushback. Worldly powers do not play nice with the kingdom of God because the kingdom of God says, this belongs to God. Thank you very much. I'm taking it back. And worldly powers will not say, sure. It says, no, I want that. So his cousin gets thrown into prison for speaking truth to power. John gets unjustly imprisoned, and eventually he's going to get beheaded and degradingly paraded around a dinner party for the power elite in Jerusalem. But the kingdom of God is at hand. It is breaking forth. God's power and rule and reign is happening. And I think that's important for us to remember that all the time, you know, when you're a Christian, if, if you're pressing into what God has for you, there's kind of always a reason to celebrate and always a reason to cry at the same, almost happening at the same time. You know that. I don't need to tell you that. You, you follow Jesus long enough, you know that. Awesome stuff happening here. Heartbreaking stuff happening over here. But this is also super convicting for me. It's a little bit scary because there's kind of a reverse correlation that's important to think about, which is if my life is going pretty well and I'm experiencing a sustained level of security and comfort and ease, is the kingdom of God actually being established in my life? Or is the ease that I'm experiencing the powers of this world and the demonic powers saying, they're, they're just totally content to let me keep living the life that I'm living because it's actually no, not making, it's not taking any ground. So there's no need for pushback. That's, that's kind of the question that always haunts me at a passage like this because when you see the kingdom breaking forth, there's always some kind of resistance. So that's important. Maybe if you're going through a season in your life where you're like, I don't really experience a lot of resistance. Life's good. Monday to Saturday, church on Sunday, Netflix in the evenings, fun with friends, four vacations a year, prosperity. Things are pretty good. Might not be a sign of anything, but the text compels me to ask myself and you the question, are you pressing into what God has for you? Or are the powers of this world, are, are you living in such a kind of a kingdom passive way that the powers of this world say, oh, th that's fine. We'll give you lots of line to, to run because there's no, you're no threat to anyone or anything of, of a dark nature. Number two, the gospel is a promise of unbridled hope. Jesus' word repent is an invitation to people who have experienced oppression. In Luke 4, Jesus says, I've come to proclaim good news to the captives. I'm going to take people who are imprisoned, literally and um, not literally, and, and free them. I'm going to, especially those taken captive by the idea of Rome, that this is the way the world is, this is who's in charge, you just better get used to it, you better surrender to it. There, done, period. To those who've been taken captive by the idea that another world isn't possible, that hope in this area isn't possible, Jesus says, I have come to release people from that kind of captivity. And I thought about that, and I thought about some of us this morning, and maybe somehow you're in a place where you feel like another future isn't possible, that you've been taken captive, maybe not in your whole life, but in, in a certain area of your life. You are functionally living as if change, like real change, transformation. It just doesn't feel like it's even possible in this area. And you've kind of just let the hope of that, of that die. Maybe you have hope in other areas, but in this area, this is the way it is. 
kind of locked in in this relationship, in my marriage, at work, for my future, for possibilities, whatever it is. And I want you to hear Jesus challenge that by saying, you need to repent of that. You need to repent of that fatalism that says, well, I guess this is just the way it's going to be forever. Jesus says repent because God's power and reign is very near. And I can, I can release you from that captivity because there's no darkness that can overcome the light that I'm bringing. And so that pastorally would be another question I would put before you. Where might Jesus be challenging you to repent of fatalism in a certain area of your life? Where have you given up hope for any kind of redemption or restoration? You need to repent of that. But also the gospel is a threat of unbridled measure. It's an opportunity, it's a promise of hope, but it's also a threat. Repent is a threat to people who want to be in charge of their own life. To people who want to protect the, the kingdoms of this world. It's a threat to the kingdoms of this world. Another kingdom is coming. But it's also a threat to the kingdom of the self. I think one of the dominant idolatries in modern culture, in our North American culture, is not a kingdom. No, no, one's, no one struggles, you know, idolizing. Certainly no one struggled idolizing the Harper government. We, that was pretty clear on Facebook. But no one's <laughs> going to struggle idolizing our government or Canada. We're not like nationalistic in that sense. But we are fiercely loyal and we have tremendous allegiance to the kingdom of the sovereign self. I have authority in my life. I get to rule my life. I am the king or queen of my kingdom. Thank you very much. I want people to be counselors and advisors to me. I'll even let Jesus be an advisor to my life. But I don't want him to be a lord in my life. I don't want him to be a king. Consultant, great. King, not so much. The gospel is a threat to that because the gospel says a new king is coming and a king is coming that is there to rule and reign, yes, over you. And that means I don't care what kind of spiritual experiences you've had. You are actually, you're actually not a Christian if you have not turned over the throne of your life to Jesus. God will not abide being your co-pilot. If God is your co-pilot, you are in the wrong seat. God is to be king, to be Lord. And that means God is to be sovereign in your life. And you can't even become a Christian until you repent of self-sovereignty. I'll be in charge, thank you very much. And to say, actually, you're the rightful king. And it's actually good news because I'm making a mess of my life when I'm trying to, when I'm trying to direct this thing. Like Ray said, if I can learn to trust you, I'll give you the throne, I'll give you control. Now things start to work the way they're supposed to work. And a lot of people say, well, I'm a Christian, like I hold Christian values, but Christianity is not first and foremost a value system. Christianity is a radical um, reorientation of the self towards Jesus. I think a lot of people today try and turn Jesus' life and his message into a value system. And the reason why they do it is so they can keep enthroned on their own life. I'm in charge of my life. I totally respect Jesus. Amazing teacher, did awesome stuff, love it. So I'll integrate some of those ideas into my life. So if you keep Christianity as a value system, you can pick and choose stuff, but you still get to be in charge. So Christianity 
has values, it drives a certain value system, but you can't just see it as that. Christianity is a radical death to the self. It's a dethronement. It's saying, he is Lord, I am not. I'm giving up my life for his glory. And I'm now going to live, not trying to build my own kingdom agenda, I'm going to live for his kingdom agenda. That's, that's very, very different than kind of cultural Christianity or value system religion. The kingdom of God doesn't play nice with the other kingdoms of this world and especially does not play nice with the kingdom of the self. That's why to be a Christian means first and foremost to deny self, to say this is not my life, this shouldn't be my life, it belongs to God. Teach me how to live the life that you want me to live, God. So my conclusion this morning is two things. It was one thing down two different paths. It's it's repent and believe the good news. This is such good news. If you find yourself tired and overwhelmed by the darkness of this world, if you feel you, that in, in one or in many parts of your life you're, ensla- you're, you're, you're held captive by something or an idea or, or a, way of, a way of being, you can repent of hopelessness. You get to repent of fatalism because God's power is being unleashed in and through this person of Jesus. And as we see the gospel of Mark play out, you're going to see all these ways that Jesus is bringing freedom. And that freedom wasn't just available to them way back in the day. It's available in and through the resurrected Christ today, right now. And if you find yourself living on your own terms, if you feel secure and stable and self-satisfied, if you're living out of self-centered authority, you're on the throne in your life, even if it's working for you, and it feels like you got, a, got things under control, I still want you to hear Jesus' call to repent. To say, I'm, this seat on the throne, that's not for me. I'm in the wrong seat. He needs to go in this seat. And I need to go on the lifelong journey of learning what it means to exalt him as my king instead of exalting myself. And so for all of us, believer and not believer, new to faith, established for decades, let's be a people who repent and believe the good news. Let's pray. God, as we sing this final song, May the thrones of our hearts be open to you. May you bring conviction. Maybe we have, maybe as Christians, we have opened up uh, much of our life to you. But maybe there are still places of authority that we've held on to. We, we, we don't trust you. We're scared. We're nervous, God. We, we have faith, but would you help us in our unbelief? Teach us to trust you, God, the way in the similar journey that you're taking Ray on, to trust you. Help that not just to be a, a glib little statement, but a lived reality for us. May your kingdom come, may your will be done on earth, in this church, in our lives, just as it is in heaven. Teach us what this means, God. In Jesus' name, amen.